Thank you, Steve. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. It is so good to be back among you, to be back in the pulpit again. Uh, one of the rich privileges on our sabbatical was getting to visit uh, other congregations, and uh, it was such a joy to uh, see that God is at work uh, around this community, as well as uh, when we were in North Carolina, a couple churches there that we got to visit. Uh, and it was so encouraging to hear uh, the Word of God and the Gospel of God preached uh, faithfully everywhere we went. Uh, so be encouraged uh, by that, that truth. And, and I do encourage you when you go on vacation, make sure that you find a good gospel preaching church. Even uh, it's okay if you go on a normal Sunday to another church. I shouldn't probably say that. A few elders might get mad. Uh, but go and visit other churches and see how God is at work. Uh, just come back. Make sure you come back uh, to Pear Orchard. Um, well, we, this morning I want us to read uh, in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, this sermon is going to be a bit of a review for all that we have heard from this great chapter. Uh, we're going to be uh, tagging off of chapter 4, verse 1, but I want to read the entirety of chapter 3 uh, and the first verse of chapter 4. So here, God's word. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, 
whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Oh Lord, would you open our eyes to see marvelous things from your word? Oh Lord, would you prevent Satan from stealing the good seed of the word from our hearts? Oh Lord, would you cause this word to bear good fruit in our lives? We ask through Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have driven down the Natchez Trace over the past year or so, especially past the Cypress Swamp and River Bend, uh, then doubtless you have seen the devastation that was caused by straight-line winds in early March of last year, just before COVID hit. It's like loggers went and for a stretch of miles cut down 80% of all the trees on either side of the trace. It is stunning. Now, having lived through several hurricanes and having a, a tornado pass two houses down from ours a couple of years ago in Sandalwood, uh, when I see something like this on the trace, uh, I often think, how does any tree survive the, this storm that blew through here? How does any tree stand firm while all the rest are toppled? I thought about that question again as I was reading our text this week, particularly chapter 4, verse 1. For Paul concludes the section that begins in 3-1 by exhorting the church to stand firm in the Lord. It's the same desire that he expressed back in chapter 1, verse 27. Now this word, stand firm, can have a military sense of holding one's position in the face of pressures to abandon it. Holding one's post, standing firm. Now, I'm sure that there are several reasons why trees might stand firm in a storm. Uh, maybe you know better than I do, but, you know, in my sort of small little mind, I think, well, maybe it's because of, you know, the, the, the different heights of trees, the different directions of the winds, the, uh, the, the depth of the roots, the age of the trees. Uh, maybe it's the, the structure of the branches or the previous, you know, wind that had hit this tree. Who knows? why trees stand firm and other trees are toppled by tornadoes and hurricanes. But how do Christians stand firm? How do Christians endure and persevere in the midst of trials and afflictions, in the midst of temptations, in the midst of opposition and, and enemies of the cross, like Paul has mentioned here in chapter 3? Well, notice what Paul says there in verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm thus. That little word thus could also be translated stand firm in this manner, in this way. Here is how you stand firm in the Lord. Now, commentators differ as to whether that word is looking backward or forward. It could, it could be either direction. And as a transition at verse, it may be that Paul is seeking to, to look in both directions. But because of the immediate context, both before this passage, before that verse, and after that verse, it seems to me that, that primarily Paul is looking backwards, the same direction he's looking with that little word, therefore. Everything that he's just written in chapter 3 is giving to us the thus, the in this manner. This is how we are to stand firm. In light of what I've written, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord. 
So how do we stand firm? That's what I want us to think about this morning. Uh, again, as I mentioned, by giving a, a brief review of what you've learned from chapter 3 over the past weeks. But then I want us to linger a little bit longer on chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. So several things that I want you to see from the passage this morning. How do we stand firm? First, we must rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. This is how we stand firm in the face of opposition, in the face of suffering, by heeding Paul's oft-repeated command to find our deepest delight, our deepest satisfaction, not in any created thing, not in our circumstances, not in any possession or gift or skill or ability, but in the Lord and in the Lord alone. Paul commands us there in chapter 3, 1. He's going to command it again and, and twice in chapter 4, verse 4. He tells us there in 3, 1, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you, a safeguard for our wandering, idolatrous hearts that tend to find joy in so many created things. And yet Paul says, if you want to stand firm, find your joy in the Lord. And in him alone, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, the sender of the Spirit, he is the one who will never disappoint you, who will never change, who will never waver in his goodness and grace. So no matter what is happening in your life, find your joy in Jesus Christ and you will stand firm in him. That's the first thing that we've seen in chapter 3. The second thing is this. To stand firm in the Lord, we must shun self-righteousness. We must shun self-righteousness. You see, in verses 2 through 11, you saw how you must stand firm, not in your own strength, not in your religious activities, not in your pedigree, not in your own righteousness or your record or your resume. All of that is rubbish. All of that is dung. You must stand firm in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is yours through faith alone, in him alone. Paul tells us, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. We stand firm in Christ, in our union with him, in our relationship with him, through knowing him, which is what Paul says there in chapter 3. He says, I want to know Jesus Christ. I want to know him. How tempting it is, even for those who are genuinely converted, genuinely saved, to trust in ourselves that we are righteous and to look down on others with contempt. How tempting it is to trust in our own strength, our own abilities, our own activities, our own righteousness. But when we do this, we cannot stand firm for all of those things are sinking sand. They are yazoo clay. They will never hold us up. So when Satan accuses you of sin, when you are beset with doubts and a lack of assurance, when temptation seeks to pull you down, Paul is saying to us, shun self-righteousness. If all you have to lean on in those moments is how good you've been the past week or how good you think you've been the past week, how moral, how strong you think you are, you will fall. And so we must stand firm in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
and salvation, free grace, the justifying righteousness that God has given to us, that he's imputed to us, credited to our account, reckoned to us through faith in Jesus Christ. So we stand by rejoicing the Lord, by shunning self-righteousness. But third, we stand as we just keep swimming. Now, this past summer, while I was on sabbatical, one of the things I did was uh, to play in the Ultimate Frisbee Summer League that has been, uh, ha- that's been held the last few years. I did play Ultimate back in college at LSU. It's something I've tried to do uh, over and over again as I've continued to grow older. Uh, I think I might have been one of the oldest people out there this summer. Uh, and so I was on this team called the Fighting Nemos. And uh, one of our team cheers before each game right, hands in the center on the count of three, was just keep swimming. Now, because I'm a, a bad father, I just assumed that that was a generic fish cheer because we're a fish team. <laughs> I'm a bad father. I've never seen with my kids Finding Nemo or Finding Dory. But you, many of you know what I learned over the summer, that that's actually, it's actually a song from the movies. Right? It's a song that, that, that speaks to us about perseverance and grit and fortitude, the exact things that Paul is calling us to in chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. We stand firm in the Lord by just keep swimming, strain toward the goal by remembering that though we have been declared righteous in Jesus Christ once and for all when we first trusted him, yet we are still sinners, as we have confessed this morning. And we are being made more righteous progressively, day by day, more and more. We are imperfect and flawed people, and yet we are called to forget what lies behind, to keep reaching forward to the glory that lies ahead, to pursue holiness in the fear of the Lord, to put sin to death as it raises its ugly head. We press on to make it our own because Jesus Christ has made us his own. Just keep swimming. Just keep pressing on day after day. You're going to fail. You're going to fall. Just keep swimming, Paul is saying. Press on, strain, finish the race. Perhaps you saw this past week, uh, the British heptathlete Katerina Johnson Thompson, who had suffered an Achilles accident, I think last year, but she had rehabbed and she had made it all the way back to the Olympics to compete in the heptathlon. But unfortunately, this week, as she was running the 200-meter race, uh, the calf on her other leg, something in it popped. She she collapsed to the ground in excruciating pain. Maybe you've seen the video. They they bring to her there on the track a wheelchair, and she refuses it. She says, no, I'm going to finish the race. And she gets up, and she hobbles across the finish line. And Paul is saying, that's what believers in Jesus Christ are called to do We finish the race. We run all the way through the finish line. We keep moving forward. We keep aiming to hold true to what we've already attained, as Paul says there in verse 16. We're going to fall. We're going to lose ground. We're going to slip back. But when that happens, Paul is saying, just keep swimming. Hold on. Press on. Keep swimming the strength that God provides Press on gloriously all the way to the end. Never give up. Keep progressing. Even when you fall backwards, you keep moving forward. Keep pressing on to know the Lord. 
to know him, to gain this prize of the upward call of God in Christ. And so we will stand firm in him. Well, there's two more things. The first, the fourth is short, and the fifth I want us to spend a, a few more moments upon. The fourth is this. Not only do we rejoice in the Lord and shun self-righteousness and just keep swimming, we must keep our eyes on examples, good and bad. Carl opened this up for us last week from verses 17 to 19. We stand firm in the Lord by imitating those who walk according to the apostolic example, Paul says, and by implication, by rejecting the example of those who are traveling down that broad road that leads to destruction, who worship their own desires, who glory in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, first and foremost, Paul says. A new citizenship is ours. We are exiles from home, and we are traveling home. And therefore, we stand firm by seeking the things that are above, by setting our mind on the things that are above. And we do this together with all who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, look at the example of others because he knows that, that though we swim individually, as it were, we do not swim alone. We do not press on alone. There are believers that have gone before us who are more mature than we. There are believers who have already gotten farther ahead in the race, who have already passed milestones. And so we can look to them and, and see how they have run, how they have labored, how they have fought the good fight and run the race. We look to them, we lean on them, we follow them. We are like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego together, together standing firm as the colony of heaven in exile in the midst of a world that hates us and hates our king. So we look to examples, good and bad, following the one and avoiding the other, all the while keeping our king and his return and I. And that's the last thing I want you to see. How do we stand firm? By waiting with eager expectation. Chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. Look at it again. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul tells us that those who have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his marvelous light not only have a new citizenship, but brothers and sisters, you have a new hope. You have a new expectation and anticipation, a new longing. And so in order to stand firm, Paul says, we must wait. We must wait. And the Greek verb here is the sense of waiting eagerly. And expectantly, like a child waiting for his birthday or waiting for Christmas morning, we long for this day to come. We anticipate it with all of our hearts fully engaged. Now, of course, if we know ourselves, if we're honest, we're not good at waiting, are we? We click on a link. It doesn't immediately go to the web page that we want to go to. And we get frustrated and grumble. And what's wrong with my internet service? Right? We're in a line, whether it's at the grocery store or at Lowe's, and, and, and the checkout lady or man is moving slowly, or the, 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 the line is moving slowly, and we get frustrated. We do not like to wait. Our culture trains us uh, not to delay gratification, but to, to satisfy gratification as quickly as possible. 
And so we have a hard time doing what Paul describes that believers do here, waiting. We grow tired of waiting. We get distracted by the, the lights and the sounds of the world around us. And yet we understand, don't we, that if, if what we're waiting for is so desirable, so precious, so worthy of possession, then we're willing to wait however long and whatever we might suffer for it. Think of how you might wait with eager expectation for a, a new season of your favorite show to come out or your favorite podcast. Think of how you await and how some people even camp out for days before to get the, the latest and greatest device, the latest version of some piece of software. We, we long for it. We wait eagerly for things. We know what it feels like. And Paul is saying that is the way that Christians are called to wait, to wait for Jesus our hope, our salvation. For you see, when, when Paul says wait, and we think, well, what are we waiting for? Paul says we are awaiting a Savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, yes, it's true. We've already been saved from sin's penalty, the guilt of sin, from sin's power, but we've not yet been saved from sin's presence. And we still await a Savior who will come the day is coming when Jesus Christ, who died for our transgressions, who rose again for our justification, who ascended into heaven, the seat at the right hand of God the Father, ever living to intercede for us. One day, he will come again, the Bible tells us, like a thief, suddenly, without notice. But Paul told us in Thessalonians 5, we are not going to be surprised by that. It's not going to take us by surprise like a thief in the night because we know, because we are waiting for Jesus to come. And when he comes, he will bring with him a new heavens, a new earth in which righteousness dwells, where there is no more sin, no more sorrow, no more suffering. He will bring you final and full salvation from all of your sin and all of the misery of your sin. We are awaiting a Savior and Paul goes on to tell us that one of the chief parts of that salvation for which we wait is a new body, a new body. When Jesus comes, he will transform this lowly body to be like his glorious body. You see, not only are we being transformed and conformed in the inner man, according to the likeness of Jesus Christ, but when he comes again by his power that he has to exert over all creation, he will transform our lowly bodies in a conformity with his glorified body. Do you think about it ever or often that Jesus, even now in heaven, has a body? The dust of earth sits on the throne of heaven. Jesus, when he rose from the dead and took to himself again a human body, still has that body in heaven. It's a glorified body. No more suffering. No more weakness. And one day Jesus will come back and will give us a body just like his, free from all decay and weakness and suffering and death. And the resurrection of Jesus is the down payment, the guarantee of our resurrection as well and of our eternally embodied existence. Think about your body. Think about the lowliness of your body. The body is not inherently evil, but because of Adam's sin there in the Garden of Eden, 
our body is subject to disease, to decay, to minds that forget, to de death ultimately. We've seen the ways that our strength fails, our mental powers wane. We've seen the ways that we can endure all manner of indignities and humiliation and sorrows and ultimately the loss of life itself. And throughout our lives, the body plays this horrible part of pulling us downward towards sin. Right? We sin with our eyes and our lips and our hands and our feet. We, we use the members of our body to disobey our Lord. Even when our spirit is willing, Jesus says, our bodies can be weak. But one day, the promise is that everything will change. Everything will change. Our bodies will be raised from the graves. If we're still alive when Jesus comes, they'll be transformed. We'll be changed in a moment, in the twinkle of an eye, at the sound of the last trumpet, from corruption to incorruption, from mortality to immortality, from humility and dishonor to glory and strength. Death will be swallowed up in victory on that last day when Jesus comes again. This is what we're waiting for. This is how we stand firm, by waiting with eager expectation. How does Paul put it in Romans 8, verse 23? Having the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We wait for Jesus, our Savior, and we wait for the new bodies that he will give us when he comes again. Thus, we stand firm. Ask yourself, do you think regularly of the return of Jesus? When I was growing up, it, it felt like there was this, uh, uh, just everybody was thinking about the second coming of Jesus. It was all around us. It was in the air we breathed down in South Louisiana. But oftentimes today, it feels like this is something that we, we don't think about often. We don't think about much. We don't meditate upon the glories of our new bodies. But when you suffer aches and pains, when you suffer mental lapses, you ought to think one day, one day Jesus is going to transform my body. It ought to cause you to long for your new body. When disease and death comes into your life and you see loved ones die and suffer, long for your new body. When you disobey the Lord, and you're convicted by his word. Do you learn, yearn for your savior to deliver you from the presence of sin, to give you a new body that doesn't sin? We're called to wait eagerly. You will spend a physical existence in eternity in either heaven or hell. And so if you are here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are not awaiting a savior as the text tells us, but you're actually awaiting a judge one who will come and will declare and pass and execute the just condemnation and destruction that you deserve because of your sin. The only hope that you have is to find refuge in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Flee from your selfishness. Flee from your self-righteousness. Flee to Christ. Flee to him so that you too might join us in waiting eagerly for this Savior to come. You will be raised from the dead if you do not know Jesus, but you'll be raised to a resurrection of judgment, Jesus tells us. Eternal separation from the Father's smile. We long for you to know the joy of the Lord, the righteousness of Christ, the grace and the strength that enables us 
to press on this hope, this glorious hope of a new body and of a Savior to come. So this is how we stand firm in the Lord. This is how we together press on. When we lived in Columbia, Mississippi, right after seminary in my first pastorate, uh, Hurricane Katrina came through and, and we sat there and we watched all the trees that fell and we watched the trees that didn't fall. And there was one little tree in our backyard, right by our uh, back patio, our back porch that didn't fall. But a, a few months later, when sort of normal thunderstorm came through, it fell, right? Half of it fell. And you're just sitting there thinking, what, what in the world? Like this tree made it through Katrina and then it falls in this little thunderstorm. And I remember thinking, what a picture for us. The 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, you who think you stand, take heed that you do not fall. How easy it is to think, you know, I'm doing pretty good standing firm. I'm doing pretty good. So you start to pat yourself on the back in self-righteousness. You start to stop pursuing progress and faith and hope and love. You stop to imitating those who are walking in righteousness. You stop thinking as much about the return of Jesus and your fight with sin and your longing for a new body in which there is no sin. And like the hare in Aesop's fable, you, you grow complacent. You take a nap, a spiritual nap. You open yourself up to Satan's devices, to the temptations of the world, the seduction of indwelling sin. So brothers and sisters, as we've walked through this text and we've reviewed chapter 3 and we've focused on verses 20 and 21, I want to exhort you to hear this word. As I come back into the pulpit once more, these words of Paul, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, my beloved, it is so good to be back with you again. But I long for you that you would heed this call to persevere, to stand firm. You cannot stand firm by yourself. You need the Lord and you need one another. So let me close with Hebrews 3, verses 12 to 14. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for the rich assurances and promises, for the rich encouragements and exhortations the challenge that you've set before us in your word this day. Oh Lord, none of us can do this apart from the grace of Christ and the empowering work of your spirit. So Lord, would you help us to remember the things that we have heard, to meditate upon the truth of the gospel. Lord, thank you for your people. Thank you, O oh Lord, for the joy of being a part of Pay Orchard Presbyterian Church. Lord, we pray for those who do not know Christ. and We ask that you would save them Deliver them from the guilt of their sin that they too might have this great hope of resurrection unto newness of life. Oh Lord, come we pray. Do what only you can do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.